Hey y'all, it's Mary Payne Gilbert and welcome to Pain in the Pod. I want to thank all of you who have joined Patreon. I have so much great stuff over there now. So if you really aren't sure what it is, and I've had a couple of people ask me, it's just a place where I can provide you with additional content on podcasts that I have done, like just extra interviews. But there's also content over there that's not related to the podcast because I just like talking to interesting people or people that I find on Instagram that have huge followings, things like that, things that are just interesting to me. And that's over there as well. So anyway, thank you to everybody that's joined. It's been successful and I'm so excited. And if you want to join, go over to patreon.com slash pain in the pod. Now, a while back, I talked to a producer of a great podcast called Over My Dead Body. And I know a lot of you listen to that. So they just put out season two. It's just wrapped. And let me tell you, it is quite a ride. So season two of Over My Dead Body is called Joe Exotic. So today I have with me Robert Moore, who wrote, reported, and hosted this amazing podcast of Joe Exotic. So, Robert, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Mary Payne. So, okay, I know that you are in Canada. So explain to me your background and how you got into this story. You're an investigative journalist by trade? No, I would not say that. Uh, (laughs) No? (laughs) No, I'm a writer by trade. I would not say I'm an investigative journalist. Man, I don't really know how to how to classify what I do. It, it's a little bit of uh, journalism. It's a little bit of essay. I wrote a book called On Trails and Exploration that was about uh, sort of all kinds of different trails from the Appalachian Trail, which I hiked, to insect trails and animal trails and ancient uh, indigenous trails. So I, I tend to look at things with, uh, especially things in the natural world, with a very zoomed out lens. And oftentimes my writing is very philosophical and poetic. And obviously this story was a big change of pace for me. Um, I mean, I also write magazine stories. So I've always got my eye out for uh, a really good, juicy magazine story. And so when I stumbled across Joe Exotic back in 2015, I, I knew I had something. I just didn't really know what kind of story it would turn into. Okay. Yeah. So at the beginning of the podcast, you say that it's the kind of article or the kind of subject for an article that a magazine would love. It's a weird guy with a dangerous profession and just a little bit of controversy. And so did did this article appear somewhere before you started the podcast? No. So what happened was I I had a friend who's an editor at a a big men's magazine, and I had run across the story in the LA Times. It said, uh, Michael Jackson's alligators boiled alive in zoo fire or something like that, burned to death in zoo fire, some really grotesque headline like that. And I, I know, and I saw it and I thought, well, you know, and this was back when uh, there was an, there's a website called fark.com, which it just, it's like weird news, you know? Uh-huh. And when I was uh, a, a full-time magazine writer, before I was, was writing books, I was, uh, I would just check it all the time to look for just things that, you know, might be out of the ordinary that might be worth digging into. And oftentimes what happens when you find a story like that is the headline is really catchy and really strange. And then when you dig into it, it kind of, it's kind of thin, you know, it's like, oh, that's less interesting than the headline. But this story was exactly the opposite. This one was, uh, the headline was strange and the story was way stranger because it turns out the zoo is owned by this guy named Joe Exotic. And this guy named Joe Exotic is, you know, a gay polygamist living in rural Oklahoma who's breeding all of these kind of mutant big cats, ligers and low ligers and tie ligers, uh, you know, all these crossbreeds and hybrids that don't exist. Some of them don't exist anywhere else on earth. 
And he has this incredible feud with with animal rights groups and particularly with this person named Carol Baskin. So I'm like, this is an interesting story. And I, I pitch it to my my editor there. And he's he's like, I, I'm not, I mean, he's like, you go down there and check it out. Like, just go down there and and spend some time with Joe because it may be there's not really a story here, but there, there might be something really great. So I go down to Joe's zoo. I wrote to him. I wrote him an email. And uh, he was like totally on board. Surprisingly, he he would it wasn't you know I thought he would be kind of resistant to uh, you know this New York City based journalist going down to hang out with him, but he loves attention. So I go down there. Uh, I stayed for five days in a trailer at his zoo. He and just followed around all day long. And and after day one, I was writing to my editor, going, "This story is incredible. There's so much going on here." And and and. He was on board with it, but ultimately we just couldn't figure out at that point in time in 2015, we just couldn't figure out how to get it into a shape that was right for a magazine because there was no, there was no storyline, you know, it was just a guy in this zoo, this very colorful character. And so, uh, and it was kind of similar to other stories. There've been stories about the Zanesville zoo massacre. I don't know if you remember that. that Yeah. Oh, there was this this guy who named Terry Thompson who who killed himself and let all of his animals out in, in <gasps> and then they had to go and remember that they had to go and, yes. and shoot all these t- it was it was a terrible really sad event and you know GQ and Esquire and and all these magazines covered it simultaneously so the world of exotic animals and exotic animal owners which had previous to that been kind of in the shadows was suddenly brought to light and I think a lot of magazine editors were like we've done that story already you know they thought Joe was the same as that which it, it really isn't. And so I knew I had this great story, but no one would publish it. And, and so I waited. I said, I'm just going to wait until some, something allows me to write this story. And then, of course, in September of 2018, I get an email from one of my sources who said, Joe's been arrested for murder for hire, for trying to kill his, his rival, Carol Baskin, for trying to hire someone to kill her. And at that point, uh, you know, then suddenly editors were interested in the story and, and it was the real question was what, how should I, you know, write this story? Because there's so much going on. There's so many elements of the story. And if a friend who I, I told about it said, you know, you should really contact Wondery because this, this would be a great podcast. And he was completely right. Yeah. I was going to ask you that, like, there's so much there that how would you even, you, you would have to storyboard it to figure out how to arrange the episodes for peak storytelling, because, you know, just sort of when I was trying to, whenever I'm going to talk to somebody, I try to kind of re-listen to the podcast. So I was re-listening to it the last few days just to have it fresh in my mind before I talk to you. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I was listening to it as one thing, but then trying to arrange questions. I'm realizing there's so much in this story and there's so much ground covered in each episode. So you did a great job arranging the episodes like for peak storytelling, like how to, because you start off with Joe's wedding to two men in 2014. So it was three guys getting married with all these animals climbing all over the place. Yeah. So how did you get that audio from that? Because you didn't know him at that time, right? No, that was like 2014. No. This is the this is the great uh, you know, the the great blessing that we had is that Joe filmed everything. He filmed everything he did because he wanted to be a reality TV star. So uh-huh. he was filming himself and putting loading things up onto YouTube and he since kind of scrubbed his YouTube channel. But you have to remember back in 2015, I was watching everything. I was watching every video I could watch of him. So by the time the the murder for hire trial came around, I had a big head start on all these other reporters because I I knew Joe's world like intimately and I was I was obsessed with his he, you know the 
I don't know how to describe it. There's just this strangeness and this fascinating quality to Joe where he seems very, on the one hand, very courageous, you know, and very bold. Like being a, a, a gay dude in Oklahoma, rural Oklahoma, who's having a three-way wedding, that takes some courage. You know, that's not like a small thing. And, and I'm sure he got no small amount of ridicule because of it. And you got to kind of respect him for that. But then he would also do these things that were so reprehensible. And, and it, to this day, you know, opinions on him are mixed among people who worked for him and people who knew him. Some say he was a great guy, you know, he's basically a, a saint who saved animals and other people say he's the devil. Yeah. And the thing is about the zoo is, so when you first went there and you stayed there for five days, did you think that the zoo seemed legit? Because the description sounds kind of like janky and rundown. Yeah. I don't know legit. I mean, so, so if you were like me and you grew up going to big city zoos, like I, I was, a, you know, yeah. I grew up in Illinois. So I go to the Lincoln Park Zoo. And I remember mm -hmm. when I was a little kid, I went to the San Diego Zoo, which is an incredibly impressive zoo. If you're used to going to those zoos, Going to the GW Zoo is a big change of pace because those zoos, first of all, they have a ton of money. And the, the thing that zoos have been doing over the last 50 and 100 years, but especially in the last 30 or 40 years, is trying to make everything look natural, right? So they have all these like natural enclosures with these rock walls and everything's open. You never see steel cages, really. Right. You think about it. Maybe you'll see some glass, like aquarium type glass. When you go to Joe's Zoo, it's all steel cages. You walk in the door. First of all, the smell, as I described in the podcast, the smell is very pungent of the zoo. And you I imagine so. And, and it's just cage after cage after cage after cage. And it's it's like an old-timey menagerie or something. It's really shocking. And, and a lot of the cages, because Joe had so many tigers, what, what your listeners should probably know is that Joe was breeding tigers rampantly. I mean, he was breeding them uh, you know, dozens a, a year, I think at least somewhere between 12 and 24, uh, maybe even more every year, year after year after year, so that people could do these cub petting uh, tours where they would hold a baby tiger cub or a baby liger or a baby lion and they would pet it and they'd take photos. In order to do that, you got to have a constant supply, right? So right. He was breeding, I mean, he was really good at breeding. I mean, I mean he was very successful at breeding them. Um, now, the ethical questions of that are something we can get into. But so you walk down these rows and it's just tiger, 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 sometimes two or three or four in a cage. It's really shocking. And, you know, some people will say Joe did a really good job of taking care of most of these animals. He did the best he could. And, and people will say, you know, like he was a real stickler for making sure the cages were clean, uh, making sure the area was was kept clean of, of weeds and things, anything you could get written up for with, for a USDA, USDA violation. But then when you zoom out a little bit, it's like this place, should we have these roadside zoos in the first place where animals are kept in cages like this? Uh, I mean, not just, you know, not just animals, but big cats and, and a chimpanzee. I mean, they had a chimpanzee named Bo that lived in this cage that to me just looked depressed and and psychotic, you know, just just had had gone mad inside this little cage. And uh, that was really sad to me. But other people still to this day say, you know, that that zoo is a great place because not only was Joe breeding, but he was also he was also rescuing animals. So a lot of those animals were rescued from people who couldn't take care of them anymore. And well, I was going to ask you ethically, like, are there like government regulations on these type of zoos? So if, if you go in as an outsider and just look around and think like, gosh, you know, this is 
okay, but it seems like the chimpanzee looks sick or there's three tigers in a cage. Is there is there government regulation on such a thing? And was he kind of always trying to keep one step ahead of it? Absolutely. I mean, yes and yes. There is government regulation. There's the, So he had, I believe he had a USDA exhibitor license, which means it's it's covered by the USDA and you have a USDA inspector who comes in. But what people will tell you in this world is that it's not that hard to mislead the USDA inspector. You know, the, um, I mean, I heard from someone that they had a special code word. All of his employees had walkie-talkies. So the, the USDA inspector would come and do a surprise inspection, which didn't happen all that often. And they would distract the USDA inspector for a little while and send out this code word over the walkie-talkies and everyone would scramble around and hide the things that need to be hidden and clean up the things that need to be cleaned up. And in that way, you know, put put a rosy picture on everything. But people who are critics of roadside zoos will tell you is that it's it's regulated, but it's under-regulated. It's not nearly enforced the way it should be. And so a lot of people get away with a lot of stuff. Right. And so... He started the zoo in, in 1999, and then his husband, Brian, died in 2001. And so when Brian died, it seems like he sort of put that person away, and he became this Joe Exotic guy. So he was like a crazy guy with this long yellow mullet, and he took, you know, tigers to a bar, and everybody thought, oh, he was he was nuts, but, you know, a fun guy. And then he took that show on the road with the Magic Act. And so I feel like, you know, his extreme behavior, and and we get more into it later, was spurned on by these like major life events, what happened to him. And then he would sort of maybe go further into his abyss of whatever was happening with him. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that if you look even farther back in his history, I mean, he's he's experienced a series of traumas. If if you take Joe at his word, you know, he was abused as a child. Um, He was, uh, you know, he had a a brother who died in in a car accident. Uh, and then he had his husband who died of AIDS, you know, essentially in his arms and, and or HIV it, it's actually Joey says it's, it's HIV, not AIDS, but in any case, HIV related complications, um, which is really tragic. All of that stuff is really tragic. And, and I think that in some way, what may have happened is that he built up this armor around himself, you know, this kind of grandiose self-image and that got starts spiraling out of control. So, so what you see is like, there's never enough money for the zoo. So he starts the zoo. Most people say with pretty pure intentions, he wants to create a zoo for rescued animals, for animals that are rescued or rehomed that are have been you know maltreated or people couldn't take care of them. And he takes them in. And it's just like this ragtag collection of animals in the beginning. But he never has enough money. He always needs money to keep the zoo open. So he tries this and he tries that and he hits upon this cub petting thing. And he combines the cub petting with magic shows, right? So he would go out and he would perform a magic show. He he learned how to perform magic from this guy named Johnny Magic. And <laughs> so you can hear, you, I, I think that's where Joe Exotic came from. It's like Joe Exotic, Johnny Magic. But uh, he would go out and perform these shows and that would draw a crowd. And then he would, and then there would be a cub petting uh, operation nearby where people would go by and for, you know, $10 or whatever, they could pet a baby tiger. And he had lines just down the block for people wanting to, because I I mean, have you ever pet a a baby tiger? Uh, No, I would be afraid. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I mean, they're not very dangerous, but you know, I actually did when I was a kid, I went to, I had a, a birthday party where I was petting a baby tiger and it's incredible. It's incredible. You, you're, you know, it's like if you don't know the ethical implications of what's going on to create that tiger, it is such a magical experience to touch a baby tiger because you you never would get to do that normally. 
Um, and so people would line up for this. But what happens is he gets caught in this feedback loop, right? Because now he has to breed more tigers, so he has more baby tigers. And then what happens to those tigers when they grow up? Well, they're very expensive to feed. So he's got more and more tigers. He's got more and more lions. And, you know, some of them he was uh, selling or he said donating uh, elsewhere. Some of them in the later years, he was just killing. He would just shoot them in the head. I mean, we know for sure he he shot five in the head, probably more to free up cage space. Um, and so he ends up, this thing just spirals and spirals and spirals. And, and Joe's ego does the same thing. The more inflated his ego becomes, the more attention he needs, the more money he needs. And that's how he turns into, you know, this unreal, this character who most people don't believe is real. I mean, I've had people listen to the podcast and say, like, this is, this must be fiction. They don't think it's a true story. It's completely true. All of it is true. It's just Joe let his life get out of control. Yes. And so that's what I want to talk about, the the, the over my dead body part. I'm going to uh, take a little break. And when we come back, we're with Robert Moore of Joe Exotic. And I want to talk a little bit more about how that happened. This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, any time you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six free months of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. Okay, I'm back with Robert Moore of Over My Dead Body, Joe Exotic. So... You were talking about how it all spiraled out of control. So meanwhile, he's doing all these mall shows and the magic shows. Now he's got Carol Baskin comes on the scene. Okay. It seems like his his hatred of her, that was like his laser focus because she was trying to stop what he was doing because she was, you know, wanted to have a pet sanctuary and she didn't think that these animals should be in the cages or, or treated like they were. And then the more she went after him, then he would turn around and go after her so much as copying her marketing to try to make people think they were the same. I mean, they ended up being in this like verbal pissing match and also, you know, lawsuits back and forth and all this. But it seemed like he really, really ramped up the focus of his hatred for Carol once his husband, Travis, shot himself in the head in front of the office assistant. Now, again, we're not even like scratching the surface of this crazy story. So his yeah. husband, Travis, who was one of the two husbands, shot himself in the head right in front of the office assistant. Do you think, did, do you think that Travis meant to do that? No, I, 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 I don't haven't, either. I haven't heard any suggestion of that. I mean, some people will theorize that that's, that's what happened because, you know, some people say, including, including, um, you know, uh, people who, who knew him at that time, you know, that day said that he wasn't, very happy in his marriage to to Joe and he felt trapped and Joe was very controlling. Joe wouldn't let him uh, have contact with his family. He wouldn't, you know, let him have access to like a computer to email people. I mean, he was, he was very Joe. That's, that's what people say. And that's what, what Travis's family say too, is that Joe is incredibly controlling and, and Travis was kind of, um, you know, captive in the zoo. I mean, that's the sense I get. He was just hanging out there, you know, smoking a lot of pot and, and kind of trapped. And, and so people have theorized that, but when you really talk to people who were there that day, that's not what it sounds like happened. What, what it sounds like happened was he was playing around with a gun, you know, and that, that's something that happens every day. He, he thought that the gun wouldn't fire 
he thought that if you drop the clip out of it, uh, it would not go off. And even though you had a, 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 you know, a round in the chamber and he put the gun to his head and he said, look, it won't go off. And he pulled the trigger and it did go off. And, Ooh. and that's, yeah, it's, it's a very sad thing. Now I've since been looking into it more because it's, it's unclear whether or not the clip was actually in the pistol at the moment and went off. It, some, some people, there's one witness who says he found the pistol uh, afterwards with the clip in it. And he took the clip out and placed it on the desk. Whereas Josh, Josh Dial, who was in the room with him at the time, you know, who, who was the only eyewitness says that actually he had, Travis had taken the clip out and put it on the desk before he pulled the trigger. Either way, it, you know, it doesn't really change the matter. It, I don't think that it was a suicide. I think it was an accident. And that's what the police have concluded as well. That's horrible. So it he is. has, now he's had two husbands that died. And yeah. so then you see Joe as a person just sort of like, well, I've got nothing to lose. And he's just like, you know, going for broke with this stuff about Carol. Yeah. So Carol Baskin herself, this was the the target of the, the murder for hire. He was trying to um, hire s- several different people in several different ways to kill her. He went himself to her zoo sanctuary and decided he could drop a grenade from a helicopter. Like you can't make this up. Yeah. Like you cannot make it up. I mean, so I, I think he was kind of, that was his dark sense of humor. I don't think he, he seriously intended to do it, but like he was definitely talking about putting a grenade in a, in a baby food jar and dropping it out of a helicopter so that when the glass broke, the handle would spring free and it would explode. That That's sort of how Joe's, brain works right like who would who would think of such a thing so carol baskin though she also has quite a story okay so she has had three husbands she had one husband turned out not great she makes this other guys having an affair with him he leaves his wife for her they get married don yeah right that's right and then the the third husband is the one that dressed up like a caveman to be yeah. funny like howard. for his wedding oh, yeah. howard howard okay but don the second husband hands his assistant a note one day who he talks to every day on the phone and says, if anything ever happens to me, open this envelope. And I'm, I'm going to tell my wife tonight that I, you know, I want a divorce. I can't take it anymore. His wife yeah. is Carol. No one ever sees him again. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And we don't I, mean, know. I mean, we don't know, you know, there's, there's not, there's not much more I can say about that because the police, they, they never wrapped up the investigation. They never named Carol as a suspect. But uh, yeah, if you talk to that person, Anne McQueen, Anne McQueen, you know, believes it, it's suspicious that that she received this envelope with a restraining order in it that Don had filed against Carol, and then Don disappears. Now, if you talk to Carol, Carol will say, uh, and has said this to me, and this is one of her chief complaints about the podcast, is that she says that Anne McQueen is not a trustworthy suspect or a, uh-huh. subject because Anne McQueen had a financial stake in getting, you know, a, a piece of Don's you know, his estate. And so uh-huh. it's really hard to know without the proper police work to sort it all out. It's, it's really hard to know what actually happened. And, uh, you know, I'm reluctant to, to say anything more than that, but it is definitely, uh, it's definitely a big mystery. What happened to Don Lewis? I mean, he's a millionaire and he disappeared and no one knows what happened to him. Okay. So my point being Carol was a worthy adversary to Joe because maybe 
she possibly had something to do with her husband being missing, um, allegedly. This is a be- this is the best story about Carol to me, to sort of sum up her character. Is is she someone? You know, she ran away from home when she was fifteen years old. She was on her own. She was with boyfriends. She had a lot of bad boyfriends who were abusive, and you know, she was hitchhiking up and down the coast. She told me that the safest place to sleep is underneath a car when you're you know when you're a woman alone. The safest place to sleep is underneath a parked car because no one thinks to look for you there. Um, and she lived pretty rough for a while and she learned how to take care of herself. And so she's in this first marriage. She got married when she was 17. I think she had her first baby when she was 19. And this guy's not a good husband is what Carol says. You know, he was abusive. He was controlling. Uh, he would mark her odometer on her car every day to make sure she wasn't sneaking around on him. And one day they get in, a, in an argument and she can tell he's going to beat her again. So she throws a potato at his head and she runs out the door and she's walking <laughs> down the street barefoot. And this guy pulls up uh, or he drives up and he says, you know, hey, you want to get in? And she's like, no, you know, no, thank you. And so he drives away and he pulls back again. And this time he has a gun on his passenger side seat and he says, get in. You can hold the gun on me and that way you'll know you're safe. And this is what I find really fascinating about Carol Baskin is that 999 people out of a thousand would have run in the other direction, right? In that moment, they would not have gotten in that car. But Carol did. Carol said, you know, I think she said to me in her head, she thought, well, this isn't boring. You know, she was, she didn't, she was terrified of living a boring life. And this was the opposite of boring. So she gets in the car, she holds the gun on him. I think eventually she puts the gun down. She starts to trust him. He pulls the car over and he wraps his hands around her throat. And he says, you know, I could choke the life out of you right now if I wanted to. And Carol just sort of looks at him and doesn't say, you know, she just sort of nods like, yeah, you could. But she's, you know, she's been through so much bad stuff by this point in her life. Like she's ice cold. She just looks at him. And I, she says she thinks the fact that she wasn't afraid, like took the steam out of him, you know, it took it. it and so he relaxed his hands and he started massaging her shoulders that's the craziest story and then they go to a motel and that's the first time you know they spend the night together Uh, carol says nothing happened physically between them they just sort of spent the night together and that so so this is this is how i mean it gives you a glimpse into the character of carol baskin she's kind of a fearless person and uh she needed to be in order to you know go on with this this ever increasing amount of of threat that was coming from Joe, she needed to be fearless and she needed to be ruthless and she needed to be uh, persistent because most people, again, 999 people would have just said, you know what, this isn't worth it. They would have just let it go um, and, and let, you know, just let go of the lawsuit. I mean, Joe was threatening her life in so many ways, but she never, she never relented. She didn't seem that scared about it. I mean, you know, even knowing now all the stuff that's come out and she said she was glad now she knows because at the time they didn't tell her any of this and that they were that they were uh, investigating him so closely in all the different ways. You know, the guy on the bike was going to cut the head off and then a car was going to do it. And then all these different ways and the guy that he hired to go down there who never went and mm-hmm. just so many different ways he had planned to kill her. Um, but in addition to all that, Joe, you know, uh, we think allegedly he sort of admitted by uh, by not saying he didn't do it when he was on the audio recording with Jeff, his partner, mm-hmm. that, that arson, they, you know, he burned down the alligator pit and he burned down the TV studio. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know for sure. I mean, he, ne- he did not deny it in that recording. Of course, he denies it to me adamantly. When I talked to him on the phone, he said, I did not do it. 
But it certainly looks very suspicious uh, that he said that, you know, Jeff, his partner said to him, why don't you just burn it down like you did the alligator thing? And he just is is silent. So so to fill in listeners a little bit, there was it's it probably sounds strange, but Joe had a TV studio where he would record a, a reality show about himself. And the TV studio was also uh, in an alligator house. So there were alligators on either side of the TV studio. And in, and in fact, one of the TV producers recalls coming in one time and finding an alligator hiding behind the green screen. Um, oh, God. <laughs> and so that one day that Joe came pretty close to getting a reality show made about himself, selling it to a major cable network. And uh, it sort of fell through. He got into an argument with his producer about who owned the rights. And then one day the studio mysteriously burns down uh, supposedly destroying all the footage and killing a bunch of the alligators. And that's that happens in 2015. That's when I sort of appear. That's when I this came onto my radar. Okay, that's right. Because you initially saw the story about Michael Jackson's former alligator burned in a fire or whatever. That's how it came on your radar. Right. Okay, that was 2015. Wow. Yeah. So he has admitted, not admitted, he is admitted by omission, but n- not to you, said that, he had a part in these, you know, burnings. Um, and then he also admitted to, you know, putting down animals when he said that he felt that they needed it. And then there was these house cats that he was just letting starve so he could feed them to the other animals. Yeah. So to me, I'm like, at some point, the animal control or the USDA, whoever comes through, if, if everybody's seeing this, like, how come he wasn't stopped? Because it obviously had spiraled so much, you know, where he had all these extra animals. Yeah, so so that's a good question. I mean, he did get some USDA violations, but not enough even close to shut him down. I think part of what was happening was that Joe had all of his employees sign a $1 million non-disclosure agreement. And so he threatened them with a $1 million lawsuit if they ever said anything about the zoo, uh, disparaging about the zoo after they left. And, and this was actually a problem I ran into with my reporting, whereas at, at, you know, I spent a week with Joe, and then afterwards I, I told him I was going to do this. I said, I'm going to go interview everyone I can get my hands on. And I started talking to his former employees. And Joe started sending me these furious text messages saying, "What you know? why are you asking questions to my computer guy? Why are you asking questions to this? You know, and he said, I just want you to know all of these people have signed a $1 million non-disclosure agreement. And if you publish anything they say, you're going to destroy their lives. And of course, that non-disclosure agreement was not legally valid. It was just a thing he had come up with. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people have since you know, discovered that. And so once he was arrested, the floodgates kind of opened and everyone started telling me these stories that they would not tell me before and that they wouldn't tell anyone else. I mean, the, the exception to that is David Stanton, who went to, to Carol. Uh, David Stanton was Joe's TV producer who had the story about how Joe was had a bunch of house cats that he was starving down so he could feed them to his snakes. He was going to he told people he was rescuing the cats, but he was actually just using this food to feed to the snakes. Of course, Joe denies that. Um, but uh, David Stanton went and and afterwards went to Carol Baskin and told her all of these stories of all the things Joe had done, including this thing with the cats. And I, as far as I know, there were no legal repercussions coming, you know, stemming from that. I don't I don't know. I don't know what happened the sort of regulatory lapse that took place. All I know is, you know, these these agencies are really understaffed. It's what I've heard is that the the USDA, they don't have enough inspectors and they don't really have um, muscular enough legislation to to do what they need to do. So people like Joe just kind of keep slipping under the radar year after year until 
something really big happens and they suddenly are in the public eye and then, you know, maybe something will happen. <sighs> okay. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, I do want to talk about what actually happened to take Joe down. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Okay, I'm back with Robert Moore of Joe Exotic. And, you know, all these different elements to this story, so many things could have <laughs> taken him down. But what eventually took him down was his hatred for Carol and all these various ways that he was trying to get people to kill her. And so he and Carol both testified at his trial. And, and from what you described, it seems like to me, and I didn't quite realize this, until, like I said, I was listening to it again and writing questions, that that the two of them are quite similar. Um, it was just like he was sort of like a rednecky version of her, or she was like a fancy pants version of him, you, you know, in, in a way that they were both so tenacious and dug their heels in, and I'm not going to give an inch. And you said at the at the trial, you know, she really couldn't help herself. She talked so much when they were sort of trying to like lead her questions and, you know, get her out of there. And same is like, same with him. Yeah. Just want to be heard, just right. talking a lot. They're both, they, they have, they, they certainly have similarities in that they're both larger than life and they're both very tenacious. Um, and I've said elsewhere that I think that there's something about exotic cat owners, exotic people who love exotic cats. And you got to recall that Carol Baskin, before she had a sanctuary, was just a breeder and collector essentially of, of cats. I mean, she she was rescuing them in a sense because she was buying them from auctions where they would have ended up in a fur farm. But she was also just breeding them and she was writing books about how to breed them. And, you know, she, she loved them. She loved wild cats. You got to think about what is it in the psychology of someone who prefers a wild or an exotic cat to a house cat? right? Because domestic cats, we have bred over generations, over countless generations to be sweet and docile and to love us back, you know, to, to be there needing you to the degree that any cat needs you. Uh, wild cats are not like that. They're the opposite. You walk in the door and they try to scratch you. You know, they're, they're dangerous and they're hard to love. And there's certain people who like that, that bit of danger. And so I think that that is something that Carol and Joe had in common was this taste for for danger, this taste for you know the the more extreme elements of life and and being just never wanting to take the safe or boring option. Now, I I I have said that elsewhere, and Carol has written me an email saying that that's not true. She doesn't feel that way. She feels like she was always just trying to save cats. And, th and that is really the only extreme thing about her is her extreme devotion to trying to save these animals. Even in the very beginning when she was buying them from auctions and breeding them, she was just trying to save the species. You know, she was trying to save these individual cats and she was breeding them so she could save these species. 
um, you know, that's that's up for the listener to decide. It's it's really hard to know, you know, inside someone's mind. But the least we can say is they're both extremely passionate people. Yes. I mean, I would say if you wanted to have a wild bobcat in your house as a pet, and she joked that every time her husband went in the refrigerator, the cat would get on top of the refrigerator and swat at him. That's, I mean, that's, that's dangerous living and that's for real. And that, then we don't even get into like the, the bigger cats than a bobcat. Um, so listen, so you talk to Joe, uh, and that's sort of at the end of your podcast, you talk to him and it's like a jail interview cause he's in jail. Yeah. And you reminded him that when you first met him in 2015, you went out to dinner with a big group and he was holding court and laughing and joking. And he told everybody he wanted to blow uh, Carol's brains out. And he dreamed about what it would look like to blow somebody's brains out. And he got all mad at you and said, like, look, if you think on a recording, I'm going to say that I said that, you know, I'm going to hang up. And he got all mad. And yeah. you and you did a great job of sort of like, all right, all right. But how often do you talk to him? And has he heard the podcast? Okay. Uh, well, so no, I don't talk to him any, I haven't talked to him since that recording. Um, the, I was before, before that I was talking to him quite frequently. You know, I mean, I talked to him probably dozens of times on the phone. Um, you know, it's quite expensive in order to call, he's in jail still. He has, still hasn't been sentenced. So from jail, it's a dollar a minute. Um, so yeah, so there's a, there's a limit to how much I could talk to him, but I talked to him, you know, for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours about his life and about, but the one thing we couldn't talk about, and he kept telling me this, and you can hear that in that conversation is we can't talk about the trial. He will not say anything that will incriminate himself. You know, obviously he's not going to admit to anything. Um, and the, his stance has always been that he was set up. He believes that Jeff Lowe, who's the current owner of the zoo, uh, had, you know, he sort of partnered up with, partnered up with this guy, Jeff, to try to protect the zoo from Carol because Carol, he was in this lawsuit with Carol. He owed Carol a million dollars. Jeff came in and said, Hey, partner up with me. I'll help you fight Carol. And then essentially at a certain point, Jeff said, you know, get the hell out. Like this is my zoo now. And, and Joe was, was sort of out, uh, you know, wandering the earth for a while. Uh, but it's pretty clear from the, the the case, which, you know, Joe was convicted of murder for hire, that he did it. I mean, that he, you know, he did hire two separate people on two separate occasions to kill Carol. And I have him on tape saying, I fantasize about seeing her brains on a wall, saying he wanted to mutilate her dead body, you know, saying all these horrible things. And the question I always ask myself is, why would you say that? You know, why would you say that to a journalist with a recorder in his hand? And right. that's what I was really trying to get at was like, not an admission of guilt, because Joe's never going to admit he's guilty, especially not before he's been sentenced. But just like, what is going on in your head? You know, like, how did you, the real question is how Joe allowed himself to step from reality into this weird, surreal realm where he was living, which is the surrealness of reality television. It's the surrealness of the internet. You know, it's quasi-real. It's like reality, but without repercussions, where you can say whatever you want. You can be as cruel as you want. You can be as outrageous as you want. And it never really blows back on you because it's all a performance. I think that's where Joe was living. And that's how people were treating it. When he was saying, I want to shoot Carol in the head, and I, and I fantasize about seeing her brains on the wall, People were laughing at that table. They were laughing yeah. hysterically. It was not uh, like a somber or horrified moment. So clearly, and this was true of his YouTube videos. I mean, he said this stuff in his YouTube videos too, not quite as extremely, but he, he talked about wanting to kill Carol all the time. And people just sort of laughed like, oh, that's just Joe. 
Yeah. And the judge said, oh, well, some of it seemed like, oh, just like a joke. And she was like, I didn't take it as a joke. I mean, a lawyer. Yeah, no, that was the that was Joe's defense attorney. So their whole defense was Joe was just kidding. That was essentially their whole their whole defense of all those YouTube videos, all the statements he made was, oh, well, that's just a character he's playing. He was just doing that to rile up his audience. He didn't really mean it. Right. And that's, right. And that's the question you're always asking yourself as a journalist is how honest is someone being with me? And Joe's a really tough person to interview because he seems like he's always being honest because what he's saying is so outrageous that no one else would say that, right? It's like you feel like he's being honest with you because he's so open. He's so open about his sexuality. He's so open about his his various grudges. You know, he says the most unbelievably unpolitically correct things. So you think, oh, he's an open book. But in fact, it may be, and it seems likely, that that's actually another smokescreen. And so this is what the whole trial boiled down to. Was Joe being serious when he said he wanted to kill Carol? Was he being serious when he told those hitmen to go kill her and gave one $3,000? You know, Joe says no. Basically, everyone else says, yes, he was. Well, at the end, you know, he said to you that karma would get her. And he and you said, well, you know, what do you think that means? And he said, the karma that will get her is she's going to die in a burning car. I mean, that's pretty specific. And he knew that you're recording that. And, you know, that to me, that's not going to help his case. Well, and in the moment, you can hear in his voice, right? You can hear in his voice the anger. And you can hear that he's he's pictured this. Or, or he's at least pictured Carol's death. Uh, it's not just what he was saying. It's how he was saying it. And that anger continues to this day. And, and Carol continues to be frightened for her life. I mean, she doesn't think this is over. Oh, I wouldn't either. But w- you asked him what his karma would be. What did he say? Uh, he wouldn't own up to it. He said, this is not my karma. I mean, so essentially, you know, what I was asking is, you're a guy who, in addition to hiring someone to kill someone else, uh, kept big cats in small cages for, you know, for years and years and years and bred cats for lives in cages. Do you see any karmic irony in the fact that you are now spending your life in a small cage? Mm -hmm. I, I just wanted to see if that would click for him at all. And he denied it flatly. He said, this is not my karma. I am getting out of here. And when I do, I'm going to start changing things. You know, I'm going to make an impact. This, the world cannot shut up Joe Exotic. He, he refuses for even one moment to say that that is his just desserts for what he's done. Yeah. And there's so many side characters in this story. I just want to like very quickly go through them. So Carol Baskin still with Howie, still doing her thing. Still, still and, you've been to, and, you, and you've been to her sanctuary. I have, yeah, a couple of times. And you said Jeff is going to close down the zoo or he's moving it somewhere? Yeah. So the plan right now, the zoo is still open. And, um, you know, it's actually, I think they've acquired a bunch more animals. You know, in the in the podcast I had visited in January and things were looking pretty thin um, in terms of the animals that were there. I think he's actually acquiring, from what I can tell on his Facebook page, he's acquiring more and more animals and more varieties of animals. He's also still clearly breeding them and letting people pet them. Uh, you know, cause there's a big sign outside that says baby tigers. So, you know, he, he hasn't really changed, but his plan is to move the whole thing down to a place called Thackerville. That's right on the border of Oklahoma and Texas, where there's the world's largest casino. So he's, you know, he's a guy who loves casinos and, and he thinks that that's a way to bring in more high end clients. If he does that, you know, this whole thing is just going to grow and grow because you're going to have lots of people who want to take Instagram selfies with baby tigers. He's oh, sure. a really big operation, but I, he's, he, I, I'm not sure if he's 
um, how finalized that plan is. He's broken ground on it. I've seen photos on Facebook, but I don't know how close he is to opening it. Now, what happened to Joe's other husband, John? John is, uh, I talk to John sometimes. He's doing great, actually. He, you know, so John is a guy who was 18 years old, I think, when he met Joe. He just graduated out of uh, high school. He went to work for Joe. And by his, you know, his own admission, he was a straight guy. He just was was looking for, you know, basically an, an, an easy ride for a while. So he got with Joe. Joe paid his bills. Joe bought him stuff. And he stayed with Joe for a long time. And when you talk to John now, it's like, he's like, you know, he kind of felt like he was, I mean, not quite brainwashed, but he was just being controlled by Joe in very subtle ways. And he's now waking up from that, you know, and he's waking up and and he's, I think, in his 30s now and trying to put his life back together because his whole 20s were taken up with Joe Exotic. Oh my gosh. Basically held captive, you know, in the zoo where he had some control. He, you know, he was kind of, um, kind of a a managerial role and he didn't have to do as much work as the other employees. But at the same time, he was, you know, he had a tattoo across his pelvis that said privately owned by Joe Exotic. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, he was, wow. Joe was controlling. And, and so John, is now getting that tattoo removed, he told me. Um, oh, I think he, he got, I, I say at one point that he, he had some missing teeth and that's something that honestly I don't, you know, I feel bad about saying because it's not his own doing, you know. Um, that's one of the things that we were trying to be very careful with in this podcast is to never point out something about someone or poke fun at someone for something that's not their control. Never to to poke fun at someone for, you know, their their socioeconomic status or their class. Right. He didn't choose to be raised up in a low-income household where he couldn't get access to a dentist. Like I, you know, and that's that's not something that anyone should be teasing anyone for. You know, now like Joe's mullet, that was his choice. Like you know, <laughs> he, he chose to get that haircut years after everyone else stopped getting them. So that's like, hilarious. That's fair game. But um, you know, he, so, so now John is has a new set of teeth. Um, you know, he's, he's sort of, he's putting his life back together and, you know, I, I guess that's, that's a little, uh, spot of hope, I guess, in this whole story. Well, I like to, um, always end my podcast, speaking of a spot of hope, I like to talk about other podcasts and talk about what you're listening to and at what podcasts have you been listening to? Give me, give me some good ones that, that would, uh, pique my interest. Sure. Yeah. So the, the first one, and, and, uh, you know, I'm sure you get this all the time is I think in the dark season two is one of the great investigative podcasts ever made. I mean, it's just an incredible work of journalism and it's incredibly well-structured. It it's just a masterpiece, in my opinion. It's really funny. I, I, I was listening to it while I was driving around, you know, rural Oklahoma. You know, it's, I did. I just drove for hours and hours and hours reporting this story. And I listened to it all the way through, I think twice. And I would send my, my producer these enraptured text messages. It's, it's, it's the greatest. It's fantastic. And he would be like, please do not try to emulate that podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> because first of all, it's much harder to do than you think. And second of all, it's not really Wondery's style. You know, Wondery is, if you've noticed, if you've listened to, and these are other ones I would recommend, is of course, Dirty John or Dr. Death. Those are yep. the two sort of flagship Wondery true crime podcasts. They're very narrative. It's very taut. It's it's very um, propulsive. It's like a, a story you can't stop listening to because the stakes keep rising and it keeps getting more and more intense. And you don't hear a lot in a Wondery podcast of people going and knocking on doors. You don't hear a lot of the phone ringing 
you know, all those things that you hear in an NPR podcast or in a CBC podcast, which are ways of fleshing out the reporter's experience and situating it from the reporter's experience. Like, this is how I reported this story. Wondery doesn't really do that. They want to create a a movie for your ears. So it's like, then this happened, then this happened, then this happens. You got to take yourself out of it. And it's actually much harder to do than you think. I mean, when I started writing this and I started uh, trying to structure it, my first impulse was, you know, this is when I met Joe and then I did this, then I talked to this person and they said, no, 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 no. It has to be then Joe did this, then Joe did this, then Carol did this, then Carol did this. And so that's one way where the in the dark school and the Wondery school kind of diverge. And I think they're both equally valid and, and if done well, are both equally compelling. Um, but stylistically, I had to force myself not to try to make In the Dark season two. The other thing is that In the Dark season two, I mean, that's some really heavy stuff. That's really important stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. Legislatively and, you know, in, in terms of social justice. This story, there are stakes. I mean, the lives of all these big cats hang in the balance of the kind of policy that we want to implement. But it's 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 not as heavy as as that story, you know? So it tonally it's just a little bit, it's a little lighter. And I think it would have felt weird to treat it with that kind of investigative rigor. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. You have, do you have any other really good other ones? Great podcasts. Let me think. I mean, there are so many that I love. Uh, you know, I, I love, I love John Ronson's butterfly effect. Um, I love, I well, just, I don't know. I've never heard of John Ronson's butterfly. Really? Effect. What, what's this? Well, it was originally on Audible. I think it's available everywhere now, but it's about the the butterfly effect that took place when these these websites, these you know, pornography websites started basically destroying the porn industry, right? So where uh-huh. you get these these places uh, like Pornhub that just that that start sucking up all the money from all the other forms because they're giving you porn for free. So how do you survive as a porn actress, for example? And what the way they survive is doing much uh, wilder, stranger, more specific types of pornography. Where, for example, someone will send them a, a stamp book that they've kept since they were a kid, and his fetish is to see her stamp on the stamp book with her with a foot, you know, with high heels. That's uh-huh. and he'll pay thousands of dollars just to see that. It's like this this exploration, and it's not just about pornography. You know, I'm not particularly interested intellectually in pornography, but the idea is what happens when the internet, uh, when the one tech company sort of absorbs all the profits from an entire industry, which of course, as a journalist, I'm very interested in, because if you look at what's happening with Google and Facebook, and if you look at what's happening with the journalism industry, it's very similar. It's like, how do we survive when all the profit is going to a couple of big tech companies. Uh, it's just a really fun, I mean, John, John Ronson's just a really fun storyteller. Um, That's really interesting. Cause I mean, you think about, you can apply that to something like Amazon, like how did we ever live without that? Now we do everything that way, you know? So it's, yeah, that, that's really interesting. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, there are a couple other ones that let me think, uh, there's one called uh, escaping Nexium by the CBC. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Josh Block, my buddy, Josh Block. Josh Block, <laughs> Josh Block was, was one of the uh, story story editors on on this podcast. Uh, he worked with us on this. And that's one where if you listen to the first episode of that podcast and you listen to how he interviews, and you, I don't think you even hear his voice interviewing, but you can hear by the answers he elicits. He's such an incredibly skilled interviewer because she's walking you through what happened to her moment by moment. And you're listening to it. And unless you're listening to it, as someone who's made a podcast, you probably don't even notice this, but it's really masterful storytelling because he gets out of the way and he lets her tell the story and take you through it. 
in real time. That is so hard to do as an interviewer. I don't think most people know if they've never tried it, how hard it is to get someone to revisit their memories and then tell it in such a way that you're there living it in their skin. Uh, it's just incredible. It's really like a model for for how to interview, I think. Yes, he's he's great. I talked to him a couple of times. Um, and you know, now that you're saying that, I think I do remember at the end when they'll go, music by this, blah, 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 story producer. And I remember thinking, Josh Block, Oh, I know him. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Well, and he's a he's a Canadian, and you're you are a Canadian, or you're just in Canada now. I'm just living in Canada. I'm I'm an American citizen and a Canadian uh, permanent resident. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. And we uh, I took a little screenshot here of where you are because that gives us a map on our uh, thing that we used to record. And I was like, what is this? It's like ocean, and then like a little dot. And I was like, there he is. Funny. I mean, it's really interesting. We'll put yeah. that up. We'll put that up on our. Um, Instagram or whatnot. Well, I really want to thank you so much because like I said, this, this podcast was so layered. I mean, I think it was six episodes, eight episodes. It could have been, it could have been 20, you know, there was so much there. So you really packed it in. And like I said, I realized it once I listened to it for the second time, I didn't miss anything the first time. I guess I just didn't realize like there's so many angles that it could go. And I just want to ask one last question is when will uh, Joe be sentenced and when will we know what his fate is? We don't know. This is one of the wild things about it. They still have not announced uh, a sentencing date as far as I know. So this case is really weird, right? Because it's, he, he, he committed two acts of murder for hire and he committed, uh, I think it's, uh, 17 or 19 acts of, of wildlife violations. So killing tigers, selling tigers illegally, um, you know, all things like that. You don't often find a murder case that is also a bunch of doing bad stuff to tigers. You know, that's a really unusual combination. And so, I think the judge is still trying to figure out what all the sentencing guidelines are and how to sentence someone for that. He's looking at the estimates I've heard are like anywhere from 20 to 80 years, I think. Um, But we really don't know. And Joe, of course, is writing a flurry of letters to the judge. He's writing letters to Donald Trump. He thinks he's going to get a presidential pardon. Um, You know, he's he's trying everything he can to get out of this, but it, it doesn't look good. I think I would guess by November, we should know for sure. Wow. Okay. Well, I'll be uh, following it. And also, I would like you to know in November, I will be in Oklahoma, right near where this zoo is. And I'm very much considering going. I think, <laughs> I think you'd find it really interesting. I mean, uh, yeah. Is it, called, is it still called the GW Zoo? It's still called the GW Zoo. They changed the name. I think it's the Greater Winniewood Zoo rather than the Gerald Wayne Zoo, but he kept the GW so he wouldn't have to change the highway signs and stuff. So yeah. <laughs> it's right there, you can drive in and I think they're open seven days a week. Um, you know, I, uh, the last time I was there, I think was, I mean, yeah, it was a while back. So it, it probably has changed. I would be fascinated to see what you think it looks like now. Okay. If I go, when I go for Thanksgiving in November, I will, um, I'll, I'll let you know, I'll send you some Instagram pictures and, and let you know what I thought. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to be in Oklahoma for a week. Um, thank you so much. This was so interesting and so fascinating. And I appreciate you taking time out of your night there in your beautiful Canada to, uh, <laughs> to talk to me. And I would like to, well, first of all, I want you to tell people where they can find out more about you yourself and also Joe Exotic. And, you know, if, if we can contact you, then we know like where your book is and all that stuff. So how sure, can yeah. we locate you? The easiest way to find me is Robert Moore. My website, robertmoore.com. It's uh, M-O-O-R, no E. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter at Robert Moore underscore. 
uh, yeah, it should all be there. You can find my book on trails. You can find links to the podcast. Uh, and also I wrote a 10,000 word feature for New York Magazine about Joe as well. So if you're someone who loves long form magazine writing, uh, it's a very, very fun, juicy, long, strange story to dig into. Uh, that's all there. Wow. New York Magazine. Wow. That's, that's a big deal. That's awesome. I, I, I will read it because I, I'm sure that there's probably even more in that article that we didn't even get to talk about because there's just so, 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 so much. It's true. Yeah. But it's one of the cool things is there's so much that they're, they're actually great companion pieces because there's a lot in the article that's not in the store, in the podcast and, and vice versa. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. And I'll just remind everybody, they can always find me on social media at pain in the pod and everybody go listen to over my dead body season two, Joe exotic. Thanks. Thank you.